this idea that care was fundamental to community, and yet that we all struggled with it, was what has inspired me to keep working in this field and see what I can do. Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, who is the producer of this program, At Home on Air. I'm pleased to welcome you to another conversation that matters for the experiences of later life. In this year's programming, we focus on the different ways to cultivate connection and our need for each other in later life. As part of this overarching year-long inquiry, we are presenting different perspectives and insights into caregiving relationships. Bob Stephen, ARP, eloquently introduced the topic in September. And tonight, our guest, Rajiv Mehta, a scientist and entrepreneur, will talk about the tools he has developed for making care relationships more visible and manageable. He leads the nonprofit Atlas of Care and for many years was on the board of the formidable Family Caregiver Alliance, a nonprofit based here in San Francisco. Thank you, Richie, for joining us. Our host is Jesse Gaskin, board member of At Home with Growing Older and user experience expert at Kaiser Permanente. Thank you, Jesse, for leading this conversation. Thank you so much, Susie. We're going to have a chance to talk about observing and visualizing our care ecosystem, the power of collective self-reflection, and moving towards what makes you thrive. So Rajiv and I worked together almost 15 years ago when I was at Deverly Design Office. And Rajiv, I remember the project for Zoom Life, that device you had created for tracking your activities was something that inspired me to work in healthcare and experience design. So thank you for that. And it's wonderful to chat with you again. Yes, I'm pleased to be here and talking to you again, Jesse. And it is amazing how our journeys have sort of stayed in this space over these last 15 years and so much learning along the way. I want to open the conversation with maybe a personal story. If you can share something in your life around caregiving. Yeah, just sort of being a human being. There are lots of such stories. There are parents getting older and passing away, aunts and uncles, but also, you know, nieces and nephews who've had very serious illnesses at young ages, and of course, friends and partners. So whether it's autism or diabetes or Parkinson's or dementia or so on and so forth, just again, as a human being, as a family person, there's lots of such experiences. And yet, unlike many people in this field, it wasn't those personal experiences that drove me to this. It was sort of observing that this was a huge you know, societal need to help us do our care better. One of the questions a lot of folks want to know is, how did you get from being a tech entrepreneur to a caring space? 
So in some ways I describe it as falling down the rabbit hole because I would not have expected this either. Much of my work in the tech space before at companies like Apple and Adobe was with really, really new innovation. So products, product categories that didn't even exist in the market. And so for that, most of these things began with essentially kind of ethnographic observations. <laughs> seeing needs in the world that weren't recognized and then seeing whether we could use technology to address these things. It was those sort of explorations that led me in the mid-2000s to talk to people in the world of healthcare, and I was made aware of the problems of non-adherence and so forth. It just got me curious, and I started paying attention to how did my own friends and family take care of themselves. I ended up going down the street for me where there was a retirement community and turned out people were very welcoming in talking about what they did. So it was that same kind of deep ethnographic curiosity that led me into this. And one of the things that became really apparent to me was I was developing a view of care that was very different than the questions that the healthcare folks had been presenting to me. I started seeing health and well-being as being much, much, much broader than medicine. These are things that are obvious to people in this field for a while, but they were new ideas to me. We as human beings, care is fundamental to our being and that we live such interrelated lives that all of us are caring for someone, being cared for, caring for ourselves, and that this idea that care was fundamental to community, and yet that we all struggled with it, was what has inspired me to keep working in this field to see what I can do. And in your work, you imagine that as a care ecosystem or a care map. Can you tell folks a little bit about how you think about care ecosystems and how they affect our lives? Yeah. You know, one of the things that people often think of is a social network. There's a bunch of people that are connected to each other. And I, I soon became more enamored with the, the term ecosystem rather than network. It has both a sense of more richness to it, that there's many characteristics that may or may not be important, but also that it's an alive system. It's constantly changing. So I end up using the term care ecosystem one of the things that happened about 12, 15 years ago was in visiting those families in the retirement community, talking to my own, I started becoming aware that we were talking about many people appreciating that, yes, this woman was caring for her father who has dementia, but she was also caring for a child with diabetes. Hearing about these complex interactions led me to say, how can I visualize this? And so it led to the creation of a tool that now we use quite broadly that we called an Atlas Care Map. And it's basically a diagram of in a person's ecosystem of care at this moment in time, who are all the people involved? In what ways are they caring for each other? How can you visualize that? It's very much a thing that happens at a moment in time. Tomorrow might be very different than today. So creating a map of what today is turns out to be helpful in understanding the situation today. In addition to the care map, what other tools are in the place of care? Before I answer your question, I'll describe how people have been impacted by the care map. Just a few little stories to get an idea, because it seems like such a simple thing. So I'll begin with, since here we are hopefully near the end of the pandemic, there was one woman who was around age 30 when she learned to draw her care map. And at that point, she had been dealing with long COVID for a year, really struggling with it. And as she drew her diagram, she included many friends and family, but she became 
angry as she realized the fact that barely any of them were helping her at all. She was very much alone with this. She also became really frustrated as she drew this reality of today, remembering what life was like pre-COVID when she was strong, independent, just going, going, going. And that's when kind of the shoe dropped, when she had this huge aha, that it was her own fierce independence that had kept her from asking for, and in fact, accepting people's offer of help. So she was not getting much help because that's the way she was insisting the world should be. And the realization for her was she had to get over her own sense of ableism to allow other people to help her. What people discover when they draw their care map varies tremendously because our lives are so different. Another person, the first time they drew it, they drew almost nothing. It was a woman drawing it. She drew herself and her husband and her mom. And as she explained, she felt obliged to include her mom in the picture. But in reality, that was her view of what their life was like, that they both had serious health issues and really were alone in the world. And I knew, because I had been talking to them just that day, she had spent an hour with one therapist and had another doctor's visit. But from her point of view, these were obligations. These weren't really people caring for her. And so sometimes people's care maps can be really sparse. And sometimes it helps them see how they see the world. It helps others understand them. And it leads to different appreciation of things. And a last story, because not everything has to do with sick people. So I was working with a restaurant in Ann Arbor with their waiters and cook staff. And one of the people that participated was an immigrant from Colombia. And she told me a week afterwards that when she began to draw her care map, she felt very lonely. She had her husband and her children, but otherwise all of her friends and family are back in South America. And so she's alone in America. And yet, as she was thinking about drawing, she found herself including three or four of her coworkers, other waitresses. And it slowly dawned on her that over the previous five years, they had, in fact, become much more than coworkers. They were deeply intertwined in their families that she, in fact, had a rich family here in the U.S. This was a huge aha to her. So what people see are different. Likewise, you know, you were asking what are some other tools that we have developed. I'll just mention a couple of them. One, we call it body connection. Basically, it's a tool that helps you pay attention to different physical or emotional states over the course of the day. And I should mention that all of our tools by design with a lot of thinking behind them are are pencil and paper based. They actually help you observe better, help you visualize better. With this particular tool, you choose what characteristics you want to pay attention to. And then over the course of the day, to the extent that you can, you simply keep notes of those things. And we have a way for you to visualize that. As another example from the long COVID world, one particular person who used that is a scientist by training. So she's kind of good at observing anyway. And she'd been keeping a detailed log of her long COVID journey over the course of a year. So she had expected not to learn much because she already knew. But as she drew, she started including things like her migraines and tinnitus. And by doing this drawing, she started seeing that there were patterns and it very quickly led to her essentially creating her own early warning system so that she can spot the migraine coming on and know when she needs to go away in a dark, quiet room for 10 minutes and get refreshed. So she's 
able to catch yourself before she crashes. There's lots of such tools. One I'll mention briefly is one we call conversations. It turns out we human beings, we really live through our conversations. In some real sense, it didn't happen unless you get to talk to somebody about it. And this tool is quite abstract, as you can imagine, but it features a lot of yellow and a lot of blue. The blue were the conversations that left you drained. The yellow were the ones that left you energized. And you discover how a two-minute conversation in the hallway can destroy your day Whereas even like a three-minute working session, which you're physically exhausted, but you come away so energized because it was such a joy working with these people. You got so much done. And, you know, this is sort of a trite example, but it, sometimes it just teaches you how important those tiny moments are. It's like smile at the clerk at the grocery store. Don't snap at them. It makes a big difference to their day. So these tools that we have created allow you to kind of see the invisible of our day-to-day -day lives and how that impacts our well-being and our interactions with others. I just want to share a personal story here because you introduced me to this tool when I was living in New York, consulting, flying three days a week. I felt normal, but when I started using your conversation tool and saw that every day was blue. It really opened my eyes and it kind of devastated me. I realized about the connections I had lost from my family and my friends. And the result of that was I moved back to the West Coast. I changed jobs and I work with KP and I have a lot more yellow in my life. So just wanted to thank you for creating this tool. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad it was useful. And I imagine there's a wide variety of folks who would get value out of using these. Can you talk about the breadth of people who use these tools from different lenses. I've led a lot of workshops over the last six, seven years, teaching people these tools. It surprised me at the beginning how powerful the workshops were. The tools are unfamiliar, but they're actually relatively easy to learn. So initially I thought, well, I'll just write a blog post. Here's the tools, here's the template, go do it. And that that would be plenty. While people have told me that they have found those really helpful, when we've led these workshops where people, you know, get an instructor, they get to go through it slow, they get to be reminded that it doesn't need to be right, just get on with it. But especially because they talk about it with the other people in the workshop has turned out to be immensely more powerful. So the workshops that I myself have conducted have ranged in terms of age from teenagers to people in their 90s. It's been the full gamut. In terms of their professions, it's ranged from students of various sorts to corporate executives, from doctors and nurses to patients of all sorts. We've had waitresses and social workers and, and rabbis and so forth. It's been kind of a gamut of humanity, a very diverse group of people. I should mention that I know a second grade teacher in LA who has been teaching these tools to her eight-year-olds for several years now. And she says it's made a world of difference in her understanding of her kids and also her kids learning about themselves. One of the points that I think really is driven home in your work is this idea of self-reflection. I think any of us can benefit from self-reflection. I hear a lot from caregivers that they're struggling with the balancing of taking care of themselves, their loved ones, their kids, all at the same time. How have you seen the power of self-reflection particularly for caregivers. What is the power of that? Well, it's interesting. You talked about your particular example where using the tool was in a sense negative in that you discovered how much harder things were than you had thought. And 
That has been a common experience with people who have very difficult care situations where we are exhausted and overwhelmed. And in a sense, at the beginning, drawing the care map or using some of these other tools makes them even more starkly aware of how difficult things are. And very early on when we started doing this, you know, some people say a social work mindset were concerned. How would people respond to sort of discovering how bad things were? We found that on the whole, that has been oddly self-affirming, not so oddly in that people discover that their situation is hard and it's hard because it's hard. It's not because they're incompetent or lazy or so forth. And that in a way is very affirming. It helps them understand there's nothing wrong with them. There was one particular person I remember because it was so sad and funny at the same time. It was a, a woman in her late fifties who was caring for her son in his mid twenties who had various emotional issues. A wonderful kid, 23 and a half hours of the day, but when disaster happened, it was quite chaotic. And so she'd been a very successful lawyer and had to give up her life basically to watch the kid. If you observed, you know, if you peeked in the living room window, you'd see her sitting around all day watching TV, flipping through magazines, and you might think, you know, what a life of leisure. And so she'd always had a hard time explaining to people how tired she was. Well, in using some of these tools and getting a picture of a day in her life was eye-opening to her. And the comment she made to me was that she realized that she did not need to feel guilty about being tired. And I was like, oh my God, yes. You know, that alone was worth it to her. She didn't know what she could do differently, but at least she no longer felt that there was something wrong with her in being exhausted. That emotional lift is important. Of course, oftentimes this leads people to think of ideas of things they might be able to do differently. I remember there was one particular woman, both she and her husband were in their 70s, 80s. He had Parkinson's and required a lot of help. And she noticed by keeping track of their activities over the course of the day, that on the one hand, he seemed to need to go to the bathroom a lot, except when there were guests there. If there were guests there, he never needed to go. So it dawned on her a hypothesis that he was bored, that going to the bathroom, asking to be taken to the bathroom was an activity. Now, I haven't seen her afterwards. I don't know whether this held out, but it's just an example that once you get clarity on situations, ideas do occur to you. And then lastly, I should mention that having this clarity aids people in an external way, in a couple of ways. One is they're just so much more equipped to describe to other people what their experience is. So to ask for help and explain what help is needed, it also makes them much more aware when they hear of potential product services that they could be useful or not. I remember, you know, when I was on the board of the Family Caregiver Alliance, we often talked about how do we get caregivers to acknowledge that they need these things? And it's hard because if you're not aware of your needs, you're not taking advantage of services. So those are a few things. I would simply summarize by saying every person is different. So the reactions are very, very different. Yeah. There's something about making it tangible and seeing it. The physicality of these diagrams is really powerful and interesting. One of the focus areas of At Home with Growing Older, as you know, is the physical environment. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how does the physical environment from your perspective fit into care? Well, that was one of the things in our core set of tools, a starting set of tools, we really wanted to pay attention to how people become aware 
of how the spaces that they're in are impacting them. And so one of the tools we developed is one that we call environment. And it simply helps people pay attention. It's almost like a moment of mindfulness on the space that you're in. Take a moment to think about the quality of the light, the quality of the sound, the clutter, smell, and so forth. You know, what is the space that you're in feel like? And how is that impacting your mood? And how is that impacting whatever it is that you are trying to do? We created this tool in a way so that once you learn it, it's very doodleable so that you can do it at a moment wherever you are. It was important to do this tool because we in the design world know how important space is to our ability to move and feel. We also know that there's a multi-billion dollar industry on architecture and home design. So we know somehow this is impacting us. And yet most of us are not so cognizant of how space is impacting us. So when we've taught people to use this tool, we hear all kinds of interesting things. People are now more aware that the light bulbs they have around the house are different colors and they clash and they don't like the clash. We wondered how useful the tool would be when we're all stuck at home under COVID. But then we started discovering that, in fact, people notice that one corner of the room feels very different than another, never mind where in the house you are. One story that really stuck with me was one woman with a house full of family, everybody trying to work from home or school from home. She discovered to her complete surprise that her daughter's bedroom was the most productive when she was trying to do work. Turned out in their household, their teenage daughter was the neatest and her room was decorated in some way that really resonated with the mom. And she found, oh my God, I'm so much more productive when I'm stuck with my laptop in here, which was in her mind kind of a funny discovery. But also more seriously, she thought, when I do get back to the office, here are things that I might want to change to make it much more conducive to me. For those who are in it, meaning in the trenches of caring, what is one concrete thing that they can do by themselves? The place that I would start is your care ecosystem. Just start thinking about the different people that you interact with, keeping in mind that almost everybody in your picture, in your little group there, is caring for themselves, is caring for others, and is being cared for. So start seeing that web of relationships and the different characteristics of those relationships. We are so accustomed by society to think of the patient, the person being cared for, and the caregiver. And yet, I have yet to meet a person, except some people in very late stage dementia or new babies, that aren't actively caring for others as well. And recognizing that similarly, people with disabilities or autism or whatever, they are active members of the community. You might just do this from a thinking perspective, or you can you know, go to the Atlas website and simply download the instructions to use our care map tool. But that's where I would start. Start by thinking about the people and the interactions amongst. Thank you. And then before we get to Q&A, the last question is about resources. What resources would you recommend for people caring for themselves or caring for others? In terms of my own organization, if you go to atlasofcare.com, you'll see right on the front page, there's a thing called Mapping Ourselves, which gives you access to the whole collection of tools. And there's very explicitly right on the front, a link to Care Maps, because it's a great place to start. You know, I would 
encourage anybody that has all sorts of family caregiving questions to go to the Family Caregiver Alliance's website, which I believe is caregiver.org. I'd start there. They have such a rich set of resources. Jesse, if I may, there was another topic that we had talked about earlier, which I think is really worth mentioning on this whole self-reflection thing, which has to do with the idea of data. When you use any of our tools, we usually provide you with a template to kind of collect some data before you do the drawing, particularly in things like the conversation tool, the environment tool. One may think that, oh, well, why do I need to do the drawing? Just let me fill out the table. And it turns out almost all the learning happens not in the data. It happens from the thinking that you're doing as you decide to use the tool and you decide to modify the tool. So much of the thinking happens when you're doing the drawing, just slowing down that embodied interaction with it is so key. And then finally, the huge increase in learning happens when you talk about your diagram with others. You know, ideally others that are also in the same community, in the same family who might have different perspectives. You know, we go through this for the insights to learn about ourselves and in a very real sense to build up our insights, to know things that we can't express, but somehow we have learned that allows us to respond well. And so the purpose of these tools is much more than collecting the data and making the drawing. It's being engaged in the process and the reflections and conversations that come afterwards. Yeah, that's an important point. Thank you for bringing it up. The idea of documenting and then seeing a trend and then making a little mini experiment to tweak a small thing in your life. That process is really something else. It's a process of improvement that is really helpful to reflect on what you're doing and how you're feeling. It's empowering to know that you can you can make changes in just a small way and see an effect. Yeah, I mean, we've had philosophers for a few millennia tell us of the importance of know yourself. And so, you know, why is it useful? Well, apparently it's useful for a lot of things, but it's just almost like so fundamental. And the tools that Atlas has developed have come because never mind this millennia of the value of know yourself, there's actually been huge leaps of innovation just in the last 10, 15 years in tools and methods for knowing oneself, that we're tapping into this wealth of innovation around the world in our tools. And so, yeah, there's a lot there. Thank you so much for the conversation and I'll hand it over to Susie. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. I wanted to lead with one question related to the data and your way of inviting people to also be creative with their observations because I feel like often we are turned off by the term tools you know tools seem to be something else to learn what I loved about what you presented on your website is that it just starts with tapping into people's individual creativity and this care map can look anyway. It's not prescribed. You can make little crowns on people's heads or embellish it in some way. But just drawing it is really important. And it's 
not intimidating. It really has a lot of flexibility built in. And the entry threshold is low. It's more the invitation to really reflect on who is part of this. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, we have been taught that tools must be used by following the instructions. This is the only way to use it. And of course, there are dangerous tools that you know one really should do that. But I found in terms of teaching all these people through these workshops, the kids they are so much faster at picking these things up because they're so much more comfortable making things up. There's one care map drawn by an eight-year-old and he drew his cat in the thing and he put a, a little cloud around it. It turns out because his cat has passed away, but he feels that the cat is still watching over him and he wanted to acknowledge that in the care map. There's nothing in my instructions that told him to do this. And so people have done all sorts of things. But yeah, that's very much part of it is learn to have confidence in your own creativity and learn from what you can. Yes, thank you. And quick follow-up question. How many people or how many sort of living beings are normally in a care map? I mean, in your experience? So a couple of things. I have seen very sparse care maps. It gave one example of that, that young couple, both serious illnesses, and she only included her mother because she felt like one should. When I get a chance to teach people to draw their care maps, I encourage them to almost rush themselves. Just do it quickly. Just do what comes top of mind. Don't bother fleshing it out. And in fact, doing it top of mind allows you to pause and say, why were these people top of mind? you know, before you fill it out much more. Of course, sometimes I also encourage people to see that they forget someone obvious. And it's just funny how often people forget their spouses when drawing their care masks because we're just there. Or sisters, apparently. Sisters seem to forget each other a lot. They just take them for granted. One of the interesting things when I have people just do it, just do it quickly. Don't get too bogged down with it is almost nobody includes health professionals in their care maps. There's practically never doctors or nurses. Now, there may be doctors or nurses, but they're brothers and uncles and things like that. And this is true even for doctors and nurses who draw their care maps. And so you get an idea how in our day-to-day -day lives, who are the people that are there. Of course, if one wanted to, you could fill a wall-sized piece of paper with more and more and more people. And it gets a point where that's not very useful. You know, as is true for any map, any diagram, it's a distillation of reality, not reality. And so you have to discover for yourself, where does it make sense to stop? Thank you. So Rachel asked, the implications of the tools seem very psychologically by nature. Do therapists use your tools to help people find insights about their lives? On the whole, the honest answer is, I don't know. We have very much developed these tools, in a sense, for people, for themselves, for their families, as opposed to with professionals in mind. Now, I know that because I'm an advisor to various research institutions that are using care maps in their research for healthcare purposes, they're investigating how could social workers use these? How could nurses use that? We quickly in the process discover all sorts of problems. The healthcare system is not actually set up to see the families that exist as opposed to the families that are legal. My wife works with homeless people in San Francisco and in those tent communities, they have a very real community, but 
those aren't people that the health system can acknowledge. And so there's real prompt challenges, depending on where in the professional world you are about using these tools. But on a more positive note, yes, definitely. There are many therapists who have told me about how they find this tool so useful to have these conversations with their clients. Thank you. And also, Rachel asked if you could share a care map so she understands better what this is like. It's just stick figures and arrows pointing to each other because this is my level of drawing skills. And then different types of arrows sort of dashed or dotted or solid or heavy kind of imply more or less involvement. There's also kind of a geographic sense and that's the people that are close by are nearby geographically, whereas people at the edges of the paper are further away, maybe across the ocean. So it's it's very simple in that sense. On our website, on the Care Map page, there are many examples. I wanted to read Eleanor's question or comment. When my husband and I were in our 60s, we found ourselves caregivers for all four parents. All had paid help, but there were Sundays off when we had to be there, and both of us had conflict with our siblings. My friends were supportive to talk to, but they couldn't help. Hoping to do better for ourselves, about 10 years ago, we formed a group of four couples, the Quartet, and exchanged house keys, children's contacts, etc. We continue to meet, but now in our late 80s, it has become apparent that we cannot provide significant help. One couple has a demented husband and she's primary caregiver. One couple is failing physically. All are reliant on their children and we will be two in the future. I think there are limits to what your friendship contacts can do for you in one's 80s, even if these have been rich friendships. What do you think? Well, Eleanor, I'm in the same boat with my mother. My father passed away two years ago, but my mother is living by herself and she is 87. My father-in-law lives not too far from her, but he's 93 and he's alone. These are very real issues. There's no magic solutions to this. I've been in the U.S. most of my life, but there's extended family back in India and they struggle with it too. I mean, we kind of romanticize the idea that with the extended families and living in much closer quarters that perhaps there's more help, but they deal with that too. It is a challenge. But Rajiv, would you think that it would be interesting for Eleanor to draw a map of all these relationships, which would include, of course, professional caregivers too? I mean, it's not just about family caregivers, no? It's also about professional caregivers. And if she did, what could she potentially learn from it? Yeah, so I think it would be helpful just to get clarity on it, but I can't promise what she will learn from it. <laughs> That's the real challenge here. You know, again, from my experience, many people have discovered things by going through the process, you know, even if it boils down to being able to talk about it more easily about the reality of things. But there can be no promises as to what kind of action you might be able to take from that. Thank you. Another question. It seems like it would be best to have a facilitator help to interpret your reflections and drawings. What do you recommend? to make the most out of interpreting your own data? 
So interesting. She asked that in the workshops that we run, we don't. We encourage people to figure out their own interpretations and reflections. When we've had workshops where the people in the room are not, if you will, a collection of strangers, but are people known to each other, it works even more. A lot of conversations that happen there amongst themselves is where the ideas come across, but also they come across over time. So, you know, at the end of a workshop, you might have some ahas. I encourage people to not get too enamored with their ahas, with the idea that their new insights may not be all that much accurate than their old insights, just differently off, that it takes time to keep observing the world. And that's why we encourage people after they've drawn their care maps to sit with them for a while, but also to go and share the drawing with others that are on your care map and hear their perspectives and be open to the idea that their perspectives may in fact be very different. And so teach yourself to reflect more deeply. You know, if I drew my own care map, sometimes I would take liberties by assuming that somebody would take care for me if I asked them, you know, I don't know. So I'm wondering then if drawing a care map would then also sort of initiate a potential ask, a planning ahead. You know, we can't get away from the fact that some of us are much more open to self-reflection and being honest with ourselves than others. Some of us have a hard time with it, but it slowly opens our eyes and we might get there. Oftentimes, to your point, what you see three weeks down the road may be very different than what you see two days down the road. An example, there was this man, a middle-aged person who had come to one of our workshops, and as he drew his care map, he found himself drawing a lot of family connections back in Hawaii, where he was originally from. And then he also included his parents who lived an hour away from him. They weren't in Hawaii. And it made him realize that as his parents grew older, maybe it made sense for them to move back to Hawaii so that they would have much more support. Sort of like Eleanor's story, they would be surrounded by people who could help. And so this insight was like, to him, a big deal. At the end of the workshop, he wanted to stay and talk about it. I caught up with him a couple of months later and learned how things went. So he had been inspired to go and talk to his parents. And he shared with them his care map, which allowed this conversation to begin on, you know, you're fine now, but as you get older, perhaps you want to move back to Hawaii and consider this. And at least started the conversation. On his next visit back to his parents, his father said, I've been looking at your care map. It's not correct. As it turned out, the father had three close friends that he saw all the time. His mother was relatively isolated. And so this made this whole issue of moving back to Hawaii much more complicated. His mother would gain lots of support, but his father would lose three close friends. The end of his life is much more complicated, but at the same time, they have much clear appreciation of each other's lives. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's a sort of conversation starter to, and facilitator between people in a family, etc. Do other organizations facilitate this workshop? So how do people get to your workshops? Most people who have gone through our workshops come away feeling quite confident in teaching the tools to their friends and family their sisters, their friends, their kids. These tools are by design relatively easy once you get over the unfamiliarity of them. Granted, some people will be much more skilled at tailoring them to their own needs rather than simply sticking with our instructions, but still people feel very comfortable with that. On the other hand, seems like teaching workshops is a whole different issue. 
Some people are much better teachers than others. So that's a harder thing. So almost all the workshops we've done have been led by us. And we've been collaborating with different organizations to bring it to their communities. Except for the very first time we did a care map workshop, we've never held a workshop on our own, just sort of open to the public. We've always worked with communities to bring it to their community and really worked with them to tailor our approach as appropriate. When we're teaching the high school kids, it was slightly different than teaching corporate execs. As it turned out, it wasn't that much different. Humans are humans, care is care. You know, so it's been very slight tailoring, sometimes just in the words we use as opposed to the real concepts. So that means it's an easy, accessible tool and it would be an invitation actually for people to go to your website, maybe meet with a group of people. Yeah, we've made the instructions as simple as we can. You know, some folks are part of organizations and they would like to bring this to their communities. I'd be happy to hear from them and see what we can do. Yeah, we might be one of them. I want to ask Howard's question. Can a family use the care maps as a way to understand their care relationships with each other, understanding visually the family network and seeing the places where care needs to be found from outside? So the gaps and how to prioritize finding this? That's a great question. So Howard, if you're going to do this or if anybody else is going to do this, I would encourage you to, in a sense, not start off with a family drawing, but to have members of the family each do a drawing, because that is more likely to surface kind of these different perspectives and perceptions and going through the process and then being able to have a conversation about, okay, now that we can meld these together, what's our rich view of things? Along the way, what I expect you will find in addition to kind of the gaps is the strengths that are perhaps not being fully utilized. You know, like the first story I told about the woman who had long COVID and she has all these friends and family, but none of them are helping, it turned out, because she wasn't allowing them. And I know when I think of my own family, there are people that are not involved because they don't know how to step in. They're really waiting to be asked. So you may discover that there are things like that. Also, as you go through it, it'll become much more clear the needs that cannot be met within that circle of people that are involved. And now you're in a better position to locate such things, to advocate for such things, or sometimes figure out how you're gonna do without but at least you can have that clarity. Rachel is asking another question. Can you say more about the environment tool, the one about how we are affected by the space we're in? What questions does it ask or how are we instructed to notice our surroundings? All of our tools have been designed to be as easy as possible, but still useful and kind of leaving it to your imagination to make them more complex when you get the hang of it. And so at the basic level with the tool, we ask you to pay attention to the quality of the light and not in the sense of how bright is it, but how bright does it seem compared to what it should be? So example, you know, if you're working, you want it to be bright. If you're having a romantic dinner, you probably want it to be dim. And so what light feels appropriate is what we're asking you to think about. Likewise, with the quality of the sound, is there clutter? Are there good aromas or bad aromas? How many people are in this context? So there's just these few very basic environmental characteristics we ask you to pay attention to. And then we ask you to think about how productive are you feeling in terms of whatever tasks that you have in mind. Are you feeling really frazzled or you're in the flow? And also just a sense of what is your mood at the moment. 
we've chosen these as with all the tools because they seem a good basic starting set in that they're widely useful, but also they're relatively easy to start with. As you get more comfortable with it, you might find yourself either taking some of those out or elaborating, adding more characteristics that you want to visualize. These are all things which concern our senses. And of course, you know, as you get older, heat and temperature is really important. And I think it's an interesting topic by itself and how you might regulate this or play with it, you know, in your own home, actually. Yeah, and outside. I mean, one of the things that is somewhat obvious to say, but in our busy lives, we sometimes don't notice Say you're living in New York City and you're commuting by subway and all the rest of it. Some of the places that you go through may be very cacophonous and you know theoretically that they're not good. But when you start doing this thing, you might see it much more starkly and you can't do anything by the fact you have to go through that subway station. But being aware of it, you might find yourself the ability to just say, okay, when I'm going through that, I'm going to take a calming breath before I go through it as a way of, to some extent, mitigating the impact of that on you. It's such a great example, Rajiv, because we're always asked to adapt to our environments. And for a long time, this works really well. But as you get older, it doesn't work so well anymore. Just this awareness that you are adapting and sort of maybe putting a little shield up against it in terms of breathing or whatever really helps. And then what we see always in our workshop is that people often forget that in their own home, they can do much more to adapt it to their needs and their comfort level. Yeah. As an example of paying attention, I live in the Bay Area, in Mountain View. So if I'm driving home from San Francisco and I'm tired, I'll take 280, even though it takes 10 minutes longer, because I will not be as exhausted as if I come down 101. Another example is we're all sort of taught now to keep the thermostat low in the winter, don't waste energy and so forth. But to what extent is that impacting you? Some days it might be just appropriate. Like today, I'm going to spend the extra money because I need to be in a better mindset. To the extent we become more aware of how this environment is impacting us, we're more able to make the changes that are within our grasp. Yeah, we're coming to the end of this really interesting conversation. And I hope you will all have a chance to visit the Atlas of Care website, dig into the tools and hopefully have fun playing with them. I also want to echo what Rachel said. She says, thank you. I'm struck with the degree of creativity and deep thinking that's encouraged here. I think not offering a recipe, but offering a way of thinking goes a long way. And Jesse, thank you for leading this conversation and connecting us with Rajiv. I also want to say that coming up, we have, again, a very different perspective. Dave Iverson, NPR journalist who wrote the wonderful book, Winter Stars, will be our guest. He will talk about his firsthand experience as caregiver for his mom, who was 95, and she lived until 105. And then last but not least, we have a great resource letter for you all with practical tips and stories how to adapt your home to being truly at home with growing older. So thank you all. And thank you again, Rajiv and Jesse, for giving us your time. We couldn't do this kind of conversations without the generosity of you all and also our audience. So thank you. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you.
This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home With Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.